What you're about to hear is a conversation between me and Norman Fenton. And the main theme we're going to talk about is the mass contagion that has swept over many people in the Western world, including particularly in the freedom movement. And what you said there, that, that unholy alliance, you know, between the, on the one hand, the, 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 those with the jihadist ideology themselves and then the woke um, progressives. Of course, there's also, as we've been speaking about today, another component, which are the the anti-globalists now have come out somehow sympathetic to this narrative. Norman is a professor emeritus of risk who specializes in probabilistic reasoning. Using his skills as a mathematician in analyzing data, Norman has become a prominent figure in combating the UN SDGs and other top-down illiberal agendas, dispelling propaganda and lies by doing the math. Well before Israel responded on the day, I was seeing these celebratory tweets from people within the so-called freedom movement, some of whom I'd kind of like respected, and I couldn't believe it. And I felt I had to, at this point, I had to respond. Norman is also the son of Ben Finkelstein, a Holocaust survivor from Poland, the sole survivor from his large family after he escaped the Lodz ghetto in 1940. His grandfather was born in Jerusalem in 1891, then part of the Ottoman Empire, whose family were forced to leave Palestine after one of the many Arab riots and pogroms against Jews, several years before Israel's independence in 1948. My father's family were massacred, every single one of them, by, you know, in, in Poland, but by the Nazis, with actually help of, of some Poles. Does that mean I can go back now, you know, 80 years, 70, 80 years later, and go and start cutting the heads off of Germans and Poles? It wouldn't, you know, it's just the, the idea, but no, according to these guys, that's, that's a perfectly reasonable reaction because you can't expect them to control their anger. It's this, this, this racism of low expectations. This conversation with Norman Fenton may have you questioning your premises and learning hidden things about the nature of humanity by exposing the underlying mechanisms that keep us trapped in patterns that undermine our ability to see clearly we can break free of the myths and misconceptions that ultimately blind us to the real threats to our liberty and to Western civilization itself. Well prior to October the 7th I was already starting to get very worried about what I saw was increasing anti-Semitism under the guise of anti-Zionism within the um, within the so-called freedom movement. I guess you, it's more accurate maybe to call it sort of the skeptics movement because these are people who were skeptical about the official narrative on COVID and climate change, net zero, were concerned about the sort of the globalist uh, great reset and stuff like that. And people who were, um, let's say, naturally resistant or, or, or wary of mainstream media, the narrative that was, you know, they saw that as a very much controlled narrative. So, you know, I, I was on uh, board with all of those things. But what I was seeing was this weird um, idea amongst a lot of them that it was that there was that the that the globalist movement was some was somehow controlled by Zionists, right? Whether that was a euphemism for Jews or other people saying, well, no, of course it's not anti-Semitic because we're just saying it's actually Israel and the and you know the Zionists in Israel were behind all this. So I was increasingly seeing this 
kind of narrative, which is actually, when you think about it, is it's kind of ludicrous because Israel is, you know, is one very, very tiny country which has a very strong national identity. And it's that kind of strong national identity, which is, of course, what the globalists hate. So I never, I just couldn't understand there was a, you know, there was a, a real inconsistency there. Um, but I was concerned about this. I mean, th just before I, again, ex expand on some of my concerns, again, as you say, I, I, I don't... Uh, make accusations of anti-Semitism lightly because, as you said, I, that was a tactic which was used by both establishment figures and those interested enough on the extreme left to actually slur people within the sceptic freedom movement. Um, usually on weird things, like if you even said the word globalist or if you criticised people like George Soros, they would say, that's an anti-Semitic dog whistle. Do you know, I was actually I was actually accused of that myself on several occasions because people probably weren't aware of my own um, uh, Jewish background, etc. And I indeed made, you know, I made a, uh, a public defence of the British MP Andrew Bridgen, who was basically suspended from the ruling Conservative Party after being accused of being an anti-Semite simply because he'd cited, uh, um, actually there was a, so there's a slight misquote here, but he'd used this comparison. He'd, he'd mentioned this idea that somebody had said, which he thought was an Israeli professor, that the uh, vaccine injuries, that the, the the kind of the aftermath of the vaccination program, you know, with the all of the injuries and deaths resulting from that, was you know the worst crime since the Holocaust. It wasn't Holocaust denial. It's just sad. It was the, it was the worst crime since then. He was just quoting that, and I made a public. You know, I made a public defence of that. Um, and I also believe that influential left-wing Jews and, and Jewish organisations like the ADL in the USA and the border Deput Jewish border deputies in the UK have done enormous harm, you know, to the Jewish community by aligning themselves, not just with the woke agenda, but also campaigns to silence those who were opposed to the kind of like the Great Reset and that globalist narrative using sort of false claims of uh, accusation of anti-Semitism. And, and nor, people say, nor do I believe, I don't believe that valid criticism of the, of the Israeli government is anti-Semitic. Indeed, a lot of what I was doing during the, um, the challenge to the vaccine narrative was, of course, being very critical of the Israeli government's appalling COVID strategy, not just from lockdowns, but of course of the ludicrous screen pass of the vaccine and its role as the Pfizer laboratory. And I actually extensively wrote about the corruption of the Israeli Ministry of Health in exaggerating the efficacy and safety of the vaccine and uh, covering up the safety issues. So, you know, I was aware of that. And I say that's 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 my perspective. That that was it. That's my um challenge to those who say oh anybody you know anybody who doesn't but you know who uh that we're, you know, we're calling out as, as anti-semites people who, who certainly are not anti-semites so i i recognize all that but it's this obsessive it was this obsessive hatred of israel that i was seeing which had nothing to do clearly had nothing to do with any of that and certainly nothing to do with israel's covid policy it was this you know this anti it's a basic anti anti-semitic trope that the zionists were at the heart of this global you know this globalist tyranny and this was kind of like brought home to me when i went to the better way conference in bath in in june of 2023 because every speaker there and every sponsor of that 
at that conference, that's a lot of people, were given a beautifully hand-wrapped copy of a book called 180 Degrees. It was, you know, basically it was a conspiracy theory book by a guy called um, uh, Conor O'Brien Greenwood. And it turned out that this book was obsessively... It wasn't only to, saying that Israel is behind all these conspiracies, that all the bad things that's happened in the world, you know, in the last 70 years. But it was obsessively focusing on the idea that Israel and Zionists were behind most of the, you know, a lot of the things that had gone wrong in the world in, the, in, in, these, in these last uh, 70 years. And, um, yeah, I mean, since... And then, of course, we wrote those series of articles in The Conservative Woman before the Hamas massacres on October the 7th, right? And as soon as those... And, but I, and I'd never commented publicly on Twitter about any of this. And our articles didn't go out before that either. They were actually written the week before and they were due to go out the week after. So anybody following me on Twitter would only have been aware of me as the sort of the COVID sceptic, the guy who did the probability and stats exposing all of the sort of the government lies about efficacy of vaccines and lockdowns and all that stuff, right? They wouldn't have known, most people wouldn't have even known I was Jewish unless they'd seen my public um, uh, defence of Andrew Bridgen, where I spoke about the, you know, my father being a Holocaust survivor and all that sort of stuff. Um, so nobody would have realised it. And then suddenly, on October 7th, even bef long, actually well before Israel responded, on the day, I was seeing these celebratory tweets from people within the so-called freedom movement, some of whom I'd kind of like respected. And I couldn't believe it. And I felt I had to, at this point, I had to respond. I had to make, I, for the first time ever, really, I, I went, you know, political, if, you, if it's, that's the right way of saying it, on Twitter and made my feelings known about, you know, what was happening and how, what an appalling massacre this was and, and that people who were celebrating it and people who were immediately coming out with these moral equivalences between, you know, the Israeli government and Hamas, you know, exposing those as being, you know, both naive and at times anti-Semitic. So I noticed that happening as well. And I was really trying to wrap my head around it. And, you know, at first I thought, well, Maybe what's going on here is kind of what you referred to, that the Israeli government had basically guinea pig their people with the COVID injections um, and that, you know, they had kind of led the way for that whole rollout to happen, which then ended up happening in other countries. And so there was obviously a lot of criticism of the Israeli government during that period, as there was criticism for most of the governments in the world. Yep. Um, and then I expected the far left to kind of rally behind um, the uh, the Hamas uh, massacre and, and look at it as this kind of act of liberation because we yeah. know that there are these kind of neo-Marxists. So that was to be expected. Uh, and we know that they're very illiberal and we know that they have these kind of cultish beliefs that in a way uh, kind of resemble what we see uh, with jihadists, there's this kind yeah. of unholy alliance between the two, which maybe we can get into a little bit later. Yeah. But I did not expect to 
see it to that degree in the freedom movement. Like I had seen kind of anti-Semitic remarks before, and I had seen uh, this idea that it was the Zionists who uh, had this conspiracy to control the to control the world. But I thought that that was kind of a fringe view among skeptics. Yeah. And I think it's important to differentiate here because the freedom movement more vastly, you know, people identify with it, but they come at it from very different perspectives and very different reasons for tagging on to that movement. So all of that being said, when this happened, I, I was pretty shocked as well. Um, and I received a lot of comments and I still do on the things that I've been posting about because I think that sometimes you can look at things that happen that are evil to the core that just get to you at a soul level and I think for me the reaction was just to look at that and and try and understand that and mourn and grieve and and go through the feelings that I had about what had actually happened. But what I saw instead was that a lot of people started to relativize it. A lot of people started to contextualize it. A lot of people started to blame the victims, yeah. whether in an overt or a covert way. Um, and I also think that there's a faction of people who look at everything in terms of everything is a psyop. Everything is fitting in this neat little box of... Everything has been orchestrated by the globalists. Yeah. Um, and so therefore, nothing organic can happen. And what happened there was simply just another one of those things. It's it's the new current thing. Yeah. So how do you see this as being different, as not being the new current thing? Well, I think that the massacre itself is something which is unparalleled. I mean, I, I described it as being, I believe, the worst terrorist atrocity of all time, in certainly in, in per capita ter terms. I mean, Israel being a tiny country, you know, seven or eight million people, when you scale up the, the number of people who were massacred on that one day, 1,400, even forgetting the people who were injured and taken hostage, that's, of course, on, on a scale, you know, an order of magnitude greater than uh, nine the nine eleven attacks when you compare it to the American population and similarly you know the the seven seven attacks in the UK so I think there's in terms of just the num sheer numbers alone it's unprecedented but in terms of the barbarism the atrocity it is unprecedented when people are saying this is worse than Nazis this really was in the way it was done worse than the Nazis the Nazis never did it with that degree of, of sadism where they're actually tying up and killing tiny children and babies and removing body parts. Um, and I, I mean, the, the, I mean, of course, this is another aspect of this, which is really interesting is that you mentioned that people were sort of contextualizing it and, and, and it, but it, it, it kind of like goes beyond that because in, they've also saying not only was this actually, um, uh, a lot of people are actually denying now that it actually that these atrocities happened, right? And even though my, I have a personal interest here um, because my niece was one of the people, she's just a, a young conscript in the IDF, like, you know, like all young Israelis, they're conscripts. And uh, she, had, she was actually at the scene of the massacre um, the next day because she was tasked with the job of actually carrying away bodies and body parts, 
because there's so, there were so many um, people injured that, that they didn't have enough medical staff who would normally deal with that. They had to do, you know, basically that was something that the, the army conscripts had to do. And she, what she, this, what she says, she's completely traumatized by it. And then she says that, you know, basically whatever the worst that you can imagine, worst things you've seen on the videos and photos that are out there is nothing compared to what she actually saw. So it's it's a lot worse even than than the the, the worst imaginable horrors that have you know that that people have actually been putting up in terms of the videos and indeed Hamas themselves put up. And so you've got all that, and yet people are you know I, even when I was talking about this and mentioned this you know on Twitter, I had people respond and say. You know, do you realize it's all a start? This isn't true. It's all it's all AI. They're saying, you know, it, and it wasn't. And if it was, it wasn't Hamas. If it did happen, it wasn't Hamas. It was the Israelis who did it themselves. We're, you're actually getting, you know, you talk about victim blaming. This is a level of victim blaming that I don't think has ever been. I don't think you can find any any parallel with this ever ever before. This is this can only be. This could only have been this kind of victim blaming can only be that. You know, you can only say that people must. Hate the Jews so much that that they can, they can, they can, they can pin it on on that, and then you get people saying, well, you know, if if Israel was prepared to use, you know, to be the Pfizer lab and potentially kill, you know, hundreds of thousands of people with this unsafe jab, then surely they would be prepared to sacrifice, you know, a couple of thousand this way. No, for a start, the problem with that argument is that as it, let's say incompetent and corrupt as um, the Israeli government um, was and is during that period, um, I actually believe that that Netanyahu, and I mean he, there was um, uh, Gantz before him because it wasn't just Netanyahu because he he only you know, he, he was only elected again remember in just over in less 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 than a year ago after this was all all happened but he basically. Um, he, I think he genuinely believed that he was being the, he was doing something good for the world. He, he actually genuinely, I mean, it's completely, it's completely nuts, as we now know about. I think he genuinely believed that by offering up, you know, Israel as this, you know, the, the sort of the main test case, although, as you said, all, most other countries were injecting people at just the same rate at the same time as Israel. But he thought that, that, you know, he was leading in this that you know, Israel would be a sort of a light to the world here. That we, we, you know, Israel is the ones who are actually pioneering this great vaccine, which is going to save people from this dreaded disease. I think that they, I think that a lot of people within Israel actually, gen, and, and certainly he, genuinely thought he was doing something good there, as daft as we now know it is. And to suggest that that by doing that, that that is somehow that equates into the idea that he would then allow his own people to be massacred in this way is, 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 is absolutely nonsensical. Well, you know, Norman, that's a very, very good point. And that comes down to understanding some kind of basic philosophy about collectivist movements and about, you know, if you think about Hayek, the road to serfdom, how the worst rise to the top, right? They have this kind of idea that they're doing good. Yeah. And so any any means justify the outcome that they're going for and and usually there's this kind of utopian vision for the world and you you might say this about the Klaus Schwabs and about the Antonio Guterreses of the world as well many of them might actually believe that they're doing good 
Speaking of the worst who rise to the top, the Trudeaus of the world claim they need to censor the internet to make it a safer place for everybody. They claim to do good by combating misinformation and being our one source of trusted news. If you don't have a VPN at this point to work around that, your browsing is not private and you're definitely not seeing everything that you want to see but they're definitely seeing what you're seeing. If you live in a country like mine, the internet is becoming filtered and controlled through the sensors of the regime. I use Proton VPN and Proton in general for my email, cloud, you name it. They have a really great sale going on right now, so if you're interested, check out my link in the description below. Yeah. So it's, it's not this kind of caricaturized uh, idea of evil, that evil people are knowingly doing things that they think are going to destroy. Maybe some of them do, but I think that that's a really misunderstood kind of concept. And I think that that kind of feeds into the idea about the, the Zionists who run the world. So can you maybe yeah. explain a little bit what that whole thing is about? And what is, what is Zionism actually maybe first? And then what is that theory all about? Yes, I mean, all Zionism is, is simply the belief in the idea of a Jewish state, for the I mean, the Jews are indigenous to the state of Israel. It's just the belief that they they have a right to to, to a state there. That's all it is. And indeed, again, contrary to what a lot of people seem to be saying now, um, that you know, people you actually get this laughable idea that most Jews aren't Zionists. Actually, uh, the belief in the state of the Israel state of Israel is of course central to Judaism and has been for thousands of years. You know, there are. Um, however many hundreds of references to returning to Jerusalem in, you know, in, in the Old Testament and Jewish prayers every, every single day. This is part of Judaism. And actually the, 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 the tiny minority are those who don't believe, that, of, of Jews are those who, believe it, who, who don't believe they have a right uh, to, to their own state. So that's what, you know, Zionism is simply the belief that Israel has right to exist as a Jewish state. It's nothing more, nothing less than that. Um, and yet, somehow, Zionism, being a Zionist, is is is, is a dirty word. It's, it's it's equated, as you say, with this idea of the sort of globalists and the idea of control. So you had this. I think what you this idea of the sort of the Zionist globalist control goes back to the famous uh, Russian the Tsarist forgery, the, the elders of the, of the Protocols of Zion, which was exactly that: that a group of Jews who they called Zionists at that, that time, were um, had this plan to control the world. And it's coming from them. I think it's that's, that idea is kind of like deeply embedded with those who want to believe that there is that, you know, there is that, um, you know, this, this small group of, of Jews who, who generally do want to take over the world, that, that could control it. But now that the modern version of that is that, of course, there have been, we know that there are globalist elites, right? And they're self-proclaimed, you know, the Club of 300, you know, of course, w, the World Economic Forum, um, you know, all, all of these, the Trilateral Commission, that, that they do have a vision for a global one world government, right? And so the idea, you know, they, they, the, the idea of the elders of the Protocols of Zion comes back in, ah, well, in fact, those people, they must be, must be the Jews, they must be the Zionists, right? And when they see, you know, that there are within that globalist elite some Jews, actually the Jews 
amongst that globalist elite, the WF, WEF, and Club of Rome, Trilateral Commission, all that, actually there aren't that many Jews there, right? You've got, you have got Soros, who's an anti-Zionist atheist Jew. Yes, he's one of them, which is, again, another irony that people somehow think that, you know, that, that, that Soros is somehow, you know, part of this globe, this Zionist globalist conspiracy. He hates Zionism. He's the one, he funds, he funds organized, most of the organizations, most of the NGOs, which are actually campaigning for the destruction of Israel. You know, he pumps millions into those organizations, right? Um, so actually, there aren't that many, but, but people say, ah, oh, well, uh, you know, they'll say that, George, that Bill Gates is a Jew. They'll say that the Rockefellers are Jewish, right? You know, then, of course, okay, you've got the Rothschilds in there, right? Well, one certainly are a Jewish family, you could say, who have been part of that elite. But other than them, and Soros, who's not a Jew, you know, who are the others? I mean, yeah, you've got a few, you know, Jews in name only in there, like, I guess, sort of Larry Fink from uh, BlackRock and Zuckerberg, who suddenly discovered his decided, you know, he, he had some sort of Jewish identity when he hadn't before, you know, recently. I mean, you know, this is, you know, there actually, you know, <laughs> there actually aren't that relative. There are a lot of Jews in other areas where they've been, they've been, very, been very influential, where I believe that that maybe has created anti-Semitism. I think that the, um, a lot of, again, of the left-wing Jews in, in politics and media right, had been maybe disproportionately representative and had been part of that woke agenda and the censorship thing, as I mentioned earlier. So that in itself, that can create anti-Semitism. But the idea of this, you know, this, that they're at the heart of the globe, the globe, the globalists who are controlling the world. I just think that's, that dates back to the, you know, to the, to the, the czarist forgery. And, and even before that, you know, there were sort of blood libels, which were, you know, were, were, were claiming similar things about, about the Jews. But yeah, I, I, that, I, I can't, yeah, I mean, I, I, don't see, I don't see it being, you know, anything other than that. Well, it's funny because you think about some of the people who brought uh, critical theory over to uh, North America, and a lot of those thinkers were Jewish. And of course, yeah. critical theory is uh, a Marxist offshoot. Yeah. But then you also have Jews like Ludwig von Mises, Austrian economists who brought these ideas of free markets, of, you know, personal liberty and things like that. So, you know, it's um, kind of putting everybody in the same box and saying that, you know, if you're Jewish, then this is yep. the way that you view the world. But what's what's interesting here is there's a lot of inconsistencies because people are saying, well, Hamas is not Palestine and we can't treat all Muslims the same. Um, and so there's, which of course is true because there are individuals and then there are, you know, groups, but, but what is interesting about that is it seems to be this kind of classic case of projection going on here. Do you want to speak a little bit about that? Do you see that happening? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting what you say there about, um, it's interesting because as I say, Jews are actually represent, you know, there are. Jews representing all of the different sort of political categories and all of the different thoughts, right? As there are, as there are Christians and as there are Muslims, but people don't, for some reason, say, talk about it being a Christian conspiracy or a Muslim conspiracy or an atheist conspiracy, whoever. They only talk about the, the kind of Jewish conspiracy of it. With regard to, yeah, it's interesting about this whole thing about, you know, um, that, that Hamas isn't representative 
of the uh, of the Palestinians. Um, I mean, the thing about uh, there's an there's an interesting. I mean, so even before I come on to that, there's a thing about this. What I do find weird is this. I, I call it sort of the racism of low expectations about um, people like you know, like the, the the Hamas people and Palestinians uh, generally. Is that when they commit the kind of atrocities that they did on 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 the ninth, the world, the 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 liberal kind of like reaction is to say, well, find the justification. Well, you know, you know, these as I as I'll. I'm happy to explain a lot of these lies about the occupation and about the oppression they're going through. They're saying it's that it's justified because that and and you can't somehow you can't they can't be expected to control their emotions, right? So they 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 would never think. I mean, you know, my you know, my father's family were massacred, every single one of them, by you know in in Poland, but by the Nazis without actually help of, of some Poles. Does that mean I can go back now? You know. 80 years, 70, 80 years later, and go and start cutting the heads off of Germans and Poles. It wouldn't, you know, the, the idea... Is, but no, according to these guys, that's that's a perfectly reasonable reaction because you can't expect them to control their anger. It's this, this, this racism of low expectations. They, yes. somehow, they, never, they never believe that, that somehow Muslims have, have got, uh, from these Arab countries, have their own kind of like agency, that there's somehow, it's always, it, they're, they're, never respon- they're never responsible for their own actions. It's always because of what's happened to them, that they do what they do, and therefore you can ex- they think you can excuse what they do. So, yeah. um, I mean, it's, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, I don't understand. There's also, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. So, so, you know, but there is something interesting in there, too, because, you know, we've also been seeing these kind of moral equivalencies being made and this kind of utilitarian way of looking at things, right? Like the numbers, the same way yeah. that we see the numbers coming out about how many people have died of COVID. Yeah. We're seeing the same numbers come out of how many people are dying in Palestine. And that is being used as a rationalization for people to say, well, this is Israel's fault, and this is, you know, we're seeing this. Clearly, people are, are blaming the Jewish people, you know, for all of this, not just the state of Israel, but we could see that if you just oh, yeah. open up Twitter, you'll see it everywhere. And if you look at people chanting in the streets, you'll see this everywhere. It's 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 not hidden anymore. It's kind of come out now, right? Oh, I, and those, that's for those numbers. This is another interesting thing. The people within the freedom movement, the skeptic movement, who absolutely didn't accept official government statistics on COVID deaths in the UK and in USA, suddenly believe every single fatality number published by Hamas, right? Because they're the, they're the only people giving those numbers. Now, I had a discussion, an argument, you could say, privately with some of the people um, in the freedom movement I'd previously respected about this, because these are the people who are pumping out these Hamas figures. And I said, do you realise what you're doing, that you are just believing these figures are coming from Hamas, right? And they'll say, oh, no, 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 that they'll say they're not all from Hamas because um, it's from some other Palestinians. Well, no, every Palestinian in, in, in Gaza who says allowed to say anything comes from Hamas. Then they'll say, oh, no, it's from the United Nations. I'll say, well, hang on a sec. No, it's not. It's, it's, it's from the UN, the United Nations Relief and Work Agency, right, which is the UN people who work you know, for the Palestinians in, in Gaza. And do you know that every, every one of those 
senior officers there is associated with Hamas as well. People don't know this. They say, oh, no, 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 it's, it's, it's OK. This is, we can quote this because these are UN figures, right? So saying these are independent UN figures. Well, hang on a sec. Even if it was, even if it was, even if they weren't, even if they were UN people who weren't uh, Hamas operatives. So now you're believing the ultimate globalist organisation, which you have been absolutely opposed to, and have, have absolutely distanced yourself through for the last three years, but suddenly now they are the key source of information for you. These are the people that you rely yes. on. <laughs> yeah, I found that funny too. I actually did a tweet uh, the other day. I took uh, Antonio Guterres and, you know, he he was basically whitewashing what Hamas did. Yeah. Uh, and I said, you know, if these are your talking points, you're probably not on team reality. You know, if you have yeah. the same talking points as Antonio Guterres, then you might want to check your premises. But yeah. what's what's difficult, though, is that, you know, there's there's so many things going on kind of that um, that I think that people are afraid to talk about uh, on on the side of of Jews and Israelis, because it is and, and this is what has blown my mind as well, is that it is unthinkable, evil, horrific crimes against humanity that that have gone on and there are still hostages there and yeah. it's very close to everybody's heart and soul and you've written about some of the reasons why this has been close to you um yeah. but then on the other hand everybody is kind of looking at this from afar but they've kind of skipped over that um going through the emotions about what happened and i think that if people would have unequivocally condemned what happened right away you know, if if Hamas wouldn't have received the support from the world at large to do what they did to to then play the victim and play the martyr, which yeah. is, you know, what kind of fundamental Islamism, you know, is about. And and I've I've this is hearing from ex-Muslims who say this. So this is not just coming from yeah. nowhere and it's not um, me having any biases, but it's about understanding that there are differences in different religions and there are differences in different political ideologies. We obviously know this. There's a difference yeah. between, um, you know, uh, personal liberty and free market economics and being a Marxist, right? So there are obviously differences in ideology that come into play here. Um, so, I mean, do you think that, that you know, the kind of the grief of the Israeli people and the Jewish people uh, and, you know, not wanting to flash all of this in people's faces because it's so difficult personally compared to what we're seeing coming out of Hamas, which includes propaganda videos. And, oh, you know, these... these propaganda, yeah. Yeah, I've seen images that are really interesting. They're kind of like all of the men are there kind of alive and, you know, they have like... Um, a child in their arms and i've seen videos where you know these there's like babies wrapped up but they're moving and so they're, yeah. they're kind of like creating a lot of propaganda and i'm not to say that there have not been innocent casualties and i obviously do not want to see any innocent yeah. children or innocent people die and i think we all can agree on that but how do you think that plays into everything norman look this whole idea the, interesting enough, the word Pallywood, apparently you can't search for it on Twitter mm. anymore, which is interesting. Mm. But this is a well-known phenomenon. The, the Palestinians have been doing these um, prop, these type of propaganda videos where they're 
exaggerate, they're massively exaggerating the the deaths and the type of deaths that are occurring. You've, this has been going on for years. This is this is very well documented. The difference, of course, the what happened to the, the Israelis were murdered. All of those those there's no child in. There are children who certainly will die in Gaza as a result of well of, of the bombing and 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 Hamas deliberately keeping keeping civilians in areas where the Israelis are warned that they're going to bomb, but but the um, the Hamas want they actually want those casualties. They actually they actually look forward to them so they can use them as this propaganda tool. So whereas Hamas murders Israeli uh, uh, cities civilians, Israel doesn't never murders Palestinian civilians. It's a different it's a different concept. Those they they will die as a result of Hamas's deliberate attempts to use them as human shields, right? There, there didn't there actually doesn't need to be any. I mean, actually, I mean, I personally don't um, agree that the, the 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 particular type of uh, bombing that the tar- you know the, this um, idea of you know warn- that there are certain buildings that belong to Hamas and they're they're going to be bombed and you warn them beforehand, but Hamas deliberately leaves civilians there anyway, so they're going to get the casualties that they can then uh, build their propaganda on. I don't particularly, um, I don't think that's necessarily sort of the best strategy, but I, I'm not, you know, you know, I'm not a military strategist. I don't, I don't I know that. I mean, personally, I think that if, if simply, if the uh, responsible governments of the world in the West simply stopped funding Hamas, which they do, they call it aid to Palestinians, humanitarian aid, but it all goes to Hamas. This is the problem. If that actually stopped, this would stop. This would all, all have stopped, right? If if, the, if Hamas hadn't been encouraged by you know the so-called progressives in in the West, which they had been, none of this would have happened. They rely on that. Uh, they, they they you know okay, they're getting a lot from Iran and Qatar, but actually far more of it has come from the EU, UK, and, and USA over the years. All of that support. The money that goes to fund, um, it goes directly to fund Hamas. It goes also, you know, the Palestinian Authority, they use it to fund terrorism themselves. They actually have this pay-to-slay policy where the more Jews or terrorists kills, the more money they get in stipend or their family does. So this has been going, all this stuff, you know, has been going on. But as you say, of course, the, the, the Israelis, you know, are reluctant to show, you know, their dead babies, right? Whereas the Palestinians... And those were deliberately killed, whereas the Palestinians are only too eager to show those who, you know, may have been killed as a result of bombing, or in many cases they just—they've actually seen ones where they've actually clearly got just, you know, they're clearly just plastic props, you know, we've seen. So stuff like that—they do that all the time. So that's 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 a very big difference. There's a there's as you say, there is a there is a cultural difference here, right? I mean. You know, Hamas, remember, is part of, you know, came, came from the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood well, is in the Hamas's uh, own charter. They're, they are talking about, uh, you know, a worldwide Islamic caliphate as their ultimate objective. They don't just want to get rid of the Jews in, in Israel. They want to get rid of the Jews all around the world. So we are talking about a completely different mentality, a cult mentality. And the progressives in the West just don't seem to be able to understand this difference, and so you get all of this cultural relativism, and as you say, the moral equivalence, which is all just you know, just kind of like virtue signaling from these people. They just don't understand 
You know, they don't understand it. And of course, they've swallowed, the key thing is they've swallowed the whole lie about the Israeli occupation and, and, and all of this stuff, you know. But they, they actually, a lot of people do not realise that their Israel completely withdrew unilaterally from Gaza in 2005. Not a single, in fact, 10,000 Jewish Israelis were, 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 actually, were actually removed forcibly from their homes. Many of them lived nowhere else. And indeed, many of those, there are the communities there in Gaza, right? Which, of course, Israel did occupy between, occupy between 1967 and, and, and 2005. There had been communities there before 1967, right? There had been Jewish communities there. So again, people, people forget that stuff. But Israel completely removed them all. And many of those people had been there since 1967. You know, there were grown-ups who had never lived anywhere else, right? In 2005, they uprooted them all. Right. It, uh, it wasn't, a, you know, I mean, that I never understood the way they did it. And they left. They said, that's it. We'll leave Gaza to the Palestine. They left them the beautiful greenhouses, all the agriculture there. They could have developed a fantastic state. Israel would have given them all the support they wanted to develop a beautiful state. They've got it. It's a, you know, you've got the whole of the Mediterranean coastline there. They had all these resources left by Israel for them. And what did they do? They immediately destroyed all of the greenhouses, all of the agricultural facilities, and started to create their terror state. And in 2007, again, what was it? Whoever it was, uh, was it Clinton, decided they had to have elections, you know, and therefore, and, and everybody warned, no, wait a minute, it's likely Hamas are going to win these elections. Oh, no, no, they, they won't. You know, the, and of course, Hamas won the elections, immediately started killing all of the, the Palestinian Authority people, took control, and basically created the terror state, and uh, immediately, almost immediately after after the, um, Hamas in power, the uh, the rockets started. They started firing rockets at Israel. And that's that's when the blockade began. And of course, even with the Israeli blockade, that doesn't of course stop. Uh, that didn't stop Israel creating the, the you know the Eretz crossing to actually provide aid to the Palestinians anyway through through that crossing, right? But they didn't want arms to get in there. And you had the naval blockades to ensure that the arms then then get through that way. But of course, Gaza has a border with Egypt. I mean, Egypt blockades them as well. But unfortunately, because of the tunnels through Egypt, that's where they get all of the weapons coming through that are supplied from places like uh, Iran and Qatar, of course. So, um, you know, this idea, this whole idea of the, the blockade and the concentration camp is nonsense. I mean, the, there's enormous wealth in there was enormous wealth in Gaza. Of course, it's mainly associated with people who are you know, part of the Hamas movement, but that's a lot of people, you know, what was it, 70% of Gazans voted for the Hamas in 2007. I mean, there hasn't been an election since, but I doubt whether the results would be any different now. They'd probably get a higher majority. Well, you know what, just to kind of support what you're saying there, um, because I don't know, I'm not close to the situation, so I'm trying to learn as much as possible. And Victor Davis Hansen has done some good work on this. And um, he put out a tweet that, that spoke about the kind of, uh, that there were many Palestinians who came to, to join uh, once they realized that uh, the Israelis who were getting butchered were defenseless and they were yeah. women and children. A lot of people crossed over and started to join in the massacre. And yeah. he said maybe committed crimes even worse than Hamas at that point. So, and again, you know, 
this is not making sweeping statements about Palestinian people in general, because as we know, and as anybody should know by having experienced the authoritarianism in the last few years, there is always at least a minority of people who do not want to go along with illiberal regimes. So we can never make sweeping statements about a whole people, but to try and understand things better, we have to be willing to, I think, look at things and try and find out the truth without um, trying to uh, find evidence to support what we want to believe, you know. And and but this also, you know, and and to give people who are very much pro-Palestinian and anti-Israel to give them the kind of benefit of the doubt, while they say, look, um, Israel funded Hamas, uh, Israel, you know, wants a genocide against the Palestinian people. They do not want to have, you know, they are an apartheid state. They don't want a, a peaceful solution with them. Um, they want to keep them imprisoned over there for their own benefit. You know, like what are uh, all of the, the counter arguments that you can make to that? Okay, okay, for that. So first of all, about this this um, notion of Israel funding funded Hamas. First of all, the history behind this is that actually, when Hamas was first formed, okay, it was not. It was just a. It wasn't a terrorist movement at that point. It wasn't. It was actually engaged mainly in uh, actually trying to improve the lives of the Palestinians when they were living under the Palestinian Authority. Like, so they were an alternative to the Palestinian Authority that they were considered to be a charitable organisation, providing help that the Palestinian Authority wasn't helping, right? And since at that time, they weren't... I mean, Israel always knew they were part of the Muslim Brotherhood, so they always knew what their ultimate charter was, right? But they weren't engaged in acts of terrorism, whereas significant parts of the, the Palestinian Authority, the PLO and the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade, which is also part of the Palestinian Authority, were engaged in acts of terrorism against Israel. This is talking about in the, in the, in the early 80s. And at that point, Israel did indeed appear to make a strategic decision that they would support Hamas as a bulwark against the, against the PLO. This was, of course, before the Oslo Accords and all of that stuff. So that's why, originally, there was support by Israel for Hamas as that bulwark okay since then the idea i mean that of course as soon as you know hamas then after the oslo calls decided that they would they would be the ones who would basically um create terror they would be the ter they would basically be the main terrorist organization if the if the plo was stopping the terrorism plo never did really did stop it but but nominally they were claiming to stop it but so that's when of course hamas became the major terrorist threat to Israel after the Oslo Accords in the early 1990s. The idea that, um, that Israel has continued to fund Hamas is, is a complete non nonsense. What they're confusing is the fact that um, with the Abraham Accords in the last uh, small number, you know, the last uh, three years, three or four years, what happened was that there were some deals struck with Qatar, right, whereby... Israel would allow Qatar to fund, provide enormous amounts of funding to Hamas on the understanding that they would return more to their kind of like charitable uh, endeavours of, of genuinely helping the Palestinians and, you know, the, the normal Palestinians in Gaza improve their lives, right? In exchange for not, for stopping firing of rockets and terrorist attacks against Israel. That was understand. There was actually, I believe in, 
23rd of September this year, an understanding between Israel and Qatar and Hamas that there was such a kind of a ceasefire in place. And that was that was the basis for an enormous new round of funding to, to Hamas. Right. So this idea that 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 Israel funded to Hamas and this was all a ploy, they were given the money to then enable them to, to, to commit this atrocity is, is the worst kind of, uh, again, victim blaming. And you know this idea, it's, it's coming back to the thing, no good deed also goes unpunished because at the same time they say the same thing. They say, oh, Israel, Israel is ISIS or Israel funded ISIS or Israel supports ISIS, right? And what's their basis for this? Well, first of all, they'll say, well, ISIS has never, in fact, this is a David Icke thing. He claimed that Israel, Israel created ISIS. And you know what his proof is? He says Israel has never, ISIS has never attacked Israel. Nonsense, right? ISIS actually was launching rockets from uh, Sinai into Israel for many, for, for several years, right? And has actually claimed responsibility for a number of terrorist attacks in Israel, which actually one of my wife's family, family members was killed, actually, in Tel Aviv on uh, January the 1st in 2015, right? So that's complete. Yeah, so that's that's all complete nonsense. Then they say, well, okay, but they they provided all of this support for ISIS in Syria. Well, hang on a sec, what's the basis for that? Well, of course, no good deed goes unpunished. What happened was that it is a fact that Israel set up these hospitals on the border with Syria where they were treating the wounded from that civil war, where where of course many people fight, including ISIS against Hezbollah and all kinds of, of things, right? And of course, there certainly would have been. I imagine members of ISIS certainly they were certainly treating Sunni fighters from that conflict in their hospitals and returning them back, and that almost certainly would have included ISIS fighters. But that was a humanitarian gesture. You know, Israel does that kind of thing all the time. I, don't, I think it's, I think they're crazy to do it because they never get thanks for it, and then, and as, as has happened here, always gets thrown back in their faces. No good deed goes unpunished. So them doing that to help the wounded from that Syrian war has been used to, as, to justify this notion that Israel supports ISIS and funds ISIS. So, Norman, do you think that it's possible now that... Okay, because first let me just give an opinion to you. What I think is going on is that we have... A, an unholy alliance, a very dangerous coalition between yeah. uh, a radical political ideology which stems from this kind of fundamentalism, uh, a radical Islam, let's say it's Hamas, let's say it's ISIS, Hezbollah, let's just put that under the umbrella of jihadist, okay? Mm -hmm. And then you have the woke, who... Yeah. You know, they are neo-Marxist. We can see now they've been cheering all of this stuff on. They, they've, they've infiltrated our institutions. They've infiltrated our governments. They've infiltrated our media. Uh, they've infiltrated our NGOs. Uh, they've infiltrated corporations. And so these two forces together are threats to the West from without and from within. And yeah. I think that what's going on here, and I'd like to get your opinion on yeah. it, is that people are too afraid to look at that. And I mean, you know, my husband back in his days when he was a pilot, he used to go to this concert hall all the time, Bataclan in Paris. And in 2015, yeah. the Bataclan concert hall was uh, 
subject to a massacre by ISIS. I think 190 people died. They they were tortured uh, in some of the same ways that as what happened on October 7th in Israel. Um, and, you know, him and I were were already kind of down that rabbit hole, had written, had read a lot of books about the topic and took an interest before 2020, way before 2020, in understanding that kind of ideology and its, and its uh, threat to the West. So do you think that what's happening here is people are just in denial of this, that they don't know what they would do if these people showed up to their doorstep and what we're seeing in the scapegoating of the Jews, in the scapegoating of Zionists, in the scapegoating of Israelis, is this targeting of them because they have stood up for themselves in self-defense. They have done the one thing that the sacrificial lamb is not supposed to do and which they maybe harbor secret resentments because they have no idea what they would do if that terror came knocking on their door. I think that's a very good point. And I, I, I think indeed, they, and, and by um, being sympathetic to the people, uh, either being sympathetic to the people who've committed those, the, the jihadists who've committed those crimes, or simply, you know, refusing to, refusing to challenge that, the kind of like the jihadist ideology. They think that that will save them from that, that same fate themselves. There's that aspect of it. I think they see that this is a way to protect themselves. This is why I think that the reason why in the UK and the USA you can't you can't open, as you say, you can't open. It, it's you know you're automatically accused of Islamophobia if you raise any of these these issues about the dangers of Islam. It's why people um, who have raised those issues get have got were cancelled before anybody else, right? And you know so people like. I mean, UK, you know, you've got people like Tommy Robinson who was raising the issues about this, the jihadist kind of like rape gangs in, in the UK and the threat long before anybody else was talking about it. He was one of the first to be completely cancelled. OK, and you get this, you get this everywhere. Um, the, and what you said there, that, that unholy alliance, you know, between the, on the one hand, the, 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 those were the jihadist ideology themselves and then the woke um, progressives. Of course, I think what you may be, there's also as we've been speaking about today, another component, which are the, the anti-globalists now who've come out somehow in support, in support of that or sympathetic you know, to, 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 to this narrative, um, because, again, they see in their minds that Israel's Zionists are somehow against them. And if these guys are fighting the Israel Zionists, then we'll be with them. You know, that's, that seems to be what they're doing. And Norman, another thing that I noticed too about that whole thing is, so within the the freedom movement, as we were saying earlier, there are kind of um, people who are reactionary, who are dissidents, and there are, you know, people who are who are dissident, but maybe for different reasons, because of different for who have different philosophical proclivities or ideological proclivities, and. Maybe there's a certain faction of people who have uh, been uh, prone to the kind of neo-Marxist ideology underneath the surface, looking at it like that triangle of oppression. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which is the critical theory neo-Marxism, which is that at the bottom you have all of the oppressed and at the top you have the oppressors. Yeah. And so when it came to the COVID thing, 
the oppressors were the Bill Gates, the Soros, the Zionists, um, and the World Economic Forum, and everybody else. And if you think about critical theory, what what the 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 idea is to flip that triangle on its head so that the oppressed have more power, so that that power is redistributed. Rather than the fruits of the labor, it's the power that's redistributed yeah. among the people who are the most oppressed. And so maybe there's something that they identify with uh, in, in, in um, adopting maybe subconsciously, some of those same kind of views about seeing the Palestinian people as the most oppressed and Israel and the Zionists being on top of that triangle. So that it's almost as if there's a Venn diagram between yeah. those two triangles. Yeah, they do. They, 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 they definitely do see it that way. There's no doubt about it. There's this other, I mean, that, of course, the idea that the, you know, the Palestinians, they equate, as you say, with critical race, they, they equate those with the sort of the blacks, they, you know, they're, they're equated mm -hmm. with the blacks of America, etc., and you know the Zionists, the whites, the, the, the oppressors, as you say. Of course, again, another thing that's completely misunderstood. People, people who've not been to Israel. As most of these critics have never been to Israel. Never been to Palestine. They don't know anything about it, but they feel that they've got the right to speak about it. You know, they know nothing about it. If they went there, they'd of course find out that, of course, most most people in Israel, most Jews in Israel are not white. You know, they come from the in now a significant majority, of course. Um, of course, you know, come, originate from, you know, from Arab, you know, those who are in, apart from those who are sort of indigenous to Israel, they come from Arab countries, they come from African countries, a lot of Ethiopian Jews, of course, have, are now living in Israel. So you actually see more dark Israelis, far more dark Israelis than white-skinned Israelis, right, which is completely, again, totally misunderstood. People have got no idea about that. Um, uh, they also forget this idea, again, which is sent another central part of the misunderstanding about the nature of Israel and the birth of Israel, was that, um, of course, 850, they talk about the Palestinians who were uprooted from what was then Palestine became Israel. Of course, most of those actually fled because they were told to flee by the invading Arab armies who said, we'll get rid of the Jews first, then you can return, right? But ah, the point is... But I did not know is, that, yeah. There were 700, you know, apparently 700,000 displaced Palestinians, right? Displaced Arabs of what was then Palestine. But of course, there were a greater number, over 900,000 Jews in the neighbouring Arab countries who were forcibly, who were forced to, to leave. And of course, most of those were resettled in Israel. Israel absorbed all of those. And it was, this was a new country. It was incredibly difficult to absorb all of those, right? But they did it, right? But of course, none of the neighbouring Arab countries absorbed, absorbed their, you know, their, their Palestinian refugees. So you've got the idea of also, remember that, there's another misunderstanding that Jordan, right? Jordan was part of you know, Palestine. That was the British mandate of Palestine, included, you know, what is now recognised as Palestine, Israel, um, but also Jordan, and, um, of course, 80% of, of Jordanians are Palestinians. Well, Jordan essentially is, you know, was, that was the, the British mandate of Palestine, Transjordan. That's what it, you know, that was, that was just given without, even though that was also supposed to be, you know, part of the discussion for the Jewish homeland, that was just given, that was just given to the Arabs, even though a lot of, most of that, most of that land was part, you know, of course, borders on, on the, you know, the West Bank, which is, of course, Judea and Samaria, Samaria which, again, were, there were Jewish uh, settlements there 
well before 19, of course, well before 1948. There were major uh, Jewish settlements there. But of course, in 1948, those areas, including East Jerusalem, which was, a, you know, where Jews, as I say, even in the 19th century, had been the majority, they were also completely uprooted. Those Jews were com not, not a single Jew, actually, who ended up, not a single Jew in the area where, where the Palestinian, where the Arab armies invaded Palestine in 1948, where they gained the territory, as in, as at that point with the wet Judea and Samaria, which Jordan took hold of, Egypt took hold of Gaza. And um, the, so those areas, they, they just were, they just, uh, yeah, between 1948 and 1967, Gaza was part of Egypt. Nobody ever said, you know, nobody ever spoke about Palestine then. Gaza was about Gaza being Palestine then. It was part of Egypt. West Bank, Judea and Samaria, that, that became part of... Jordan took that by force in 1948. All of the Jews in East Jerusalem and from Judea and Samaria, every single one of them was removed. Not a single one was left, left in there, right? Jordan occupied that land. That was... Well, there you've got your palace, you've got your West Bank and you've got your Gaza. West Bank was occupied by Jordan. Gaza by Egypt, and no, nobody, they, but those countries, Egypt and Jordan, considered them as their property, and the people in the people in Gaza and the people in in the West Bank considered themselves as Jordanian or Egyptian. It was only when the, basically the KGB in 1964 created the Palestine Liberation Organization, the notion of a Palestinian national identity, that this idea of the Palestinian national identity became a thing. And you write about that uh, in your uh, essays, in your personal essay and in the five-part essay that you co-authored. Yeah. But I want to zoom out a little bit from all of that. And what I think is that, you know, we've seen in the last few years that logic doesn't matter. Yeah. Th that facts don't really matter. Mm. That, you know, history doesn't really matter. I I've been looking at things, you know, trying to figure it out from this kind of philosophical perspective. And I'm a big fan of René Girard and yeah. his uh, theory of mimetic desire and the scapegoating mechanism, which is basically just in a nutshell, I'm sure you know. Yeah. So there, there, me and you are friends, we get along great. But then suddenly, you know what, like you, you have a really nice painting on your wall over there. And I really want that too. I want to have the same one as you. And so, you know, suddenly I start to harbor some resentment towards you and I start to change my behavior towards you. And now we're in this kind of negative reciprocity together because you're thinking, well, sh you know, she's being negative with me. And but you're also now thinking, but I want my painting even more now. And I want to have, you know, it's really mine. And so there's this kind of mimetic desire that René Girard talks about. And what he says is that when this desire turns into rivalry, you know, the, the outcome of archaic uh, pre-civilization was these two people are going to fight each other. Okay, yeah. so these two cavemen are going to bang each other over the head to get what they want. And then one of them's going to die. But what changed things, what actually laid the foundation for civilization was this very imperfect mechanism called the scapegoating mechanism. So the idea was that in order for us to displace our rivalry, to project it onto a third party, an innocent third party, we could find a way to resolve our own conflict. And this is, you know, on a societal level, 
what happened during Nazi Germany when everybody scapegoated the Jews. This is what happened during COVID, which many people who are now part of the scapegoating mechanism on the side of the scapegoating were scapegoated against because they didn't want to be locked down, because they didn't want to wear a mask, because they didn't want to take the injection, whatever it was. Those people were scapegoated. They were part of that minority group. But now what we're seeing is, again, we've come back to this phenomenon of scapegoating the Jews to get rid of societal tension and societal ills and and I, I, this is what I kind of see going on everywhere. And yeah. and this, I read a great article yesterday in the Free Press, which talked about how um, in Russia, just, just last week, there was uh, a, a flight coming in from Tel Aviv, yeah. and all of the uh, Israelis were attacked, right? And a rabbi it, commented... A lot, of them were, a lot of them were just Uzbeks who'd gone to Israel for medical treatment. This is another interesting thing about that. Oh, they, they, yeah. Interesting. So they weren't Israelis then. Oh, they were, I'm sure there probably were Israelis on there, but there weren't okay. that many. Yeah. Ah, so they just so they saw the flight coming from Tel Aviv. They said yeah. there's Jews on that airplane, and they yeah. went to scapegoat them. The, there's been a lot of civil unrest in Russia. There's been a lot of suffering because of the war. There's been a lot of things going yeah. on, and now what's happening is that the people, you know, are are discontented with their government. They're discontented with each other, and so what they're doing is now they're scapegoating the Jews, and this is what we're seeing. I think on a worldwide yeah. level, that includes people who are part of the freedom movement, the skeptics. It includes people who are part of the woke as well. Yeah. Um, they, you know, are finding a way to re- release their kind of mimetic rivalry. And and for some reason, that target is the Jews, and it's been the Jews for thousands of years. Absolutely. In fact, I'll go even further than that, or let's say provide some confirmation that in, in set, even on the some of the private WhatsApp groups I'm on, which have like, a, I mean, there's a lot of them, very, very big groups, including, you know, groups with all of the key top, you know, all of the sort of the, the key activists, the key people during um, the COVID years. I'm seeing on there people saying effectively now that if only, if only Israel didn't exist, all of the world's problems will be solved. Things like that. And where are the Jews well, supposed to words. go? I mean, they say right? it in different ways, but well, yeah. some are quite open. Some will say that, you know, that, 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 that creating Israel is what has really destroyed, is what has led to all of the world's problems. People have said that quite openly. And people are saying in as many words, if only we can just get rid of the Jewish state now, all of the world's problems will be more or less resolved. And you know what? What's interesting, what I found here, because I didn't really have, you know, I didn't really give much thought to Zionism or the Jewish state. You know, I thought about it passively before, but now, you know, I can really kind of see the case for a Jewish state because where is everyone supposed to go? I mean, you know, like, look at look at the streets of the UK, look in Canada, where I live, look at what's going on, look at the the incident I just spoke about in Russia, you know, and uh, I saw a really good tweet from Gal Shalev, who said, you know, now I understand it, too. You know, I mean, we we need an army of our own people to protect us because nobody else will. Yeah, absolutely. So listen, Norman, there's a lot more that we can yeah. talk about. I hope to have you on again here. I have so many questions written down for you. You go into detail about how the UN actually um, 
gave rise to a lot of the anti-Semitic tropes that we hear about Israel and about Israelis and the and the Zionists. There are so many things that you know we could continue to cover, maybe in another conversation. Yeah, but sure. I think for now, um, we've at least laid the foundation to continue this discussion. And I really thank you so much for your time and for uh, for what you've written on this. I will link everything below. Do you have any last thoughts? Well, no, I just want to thank you for, for your support and for the stuff that you've been doing, because it's it's, you know, there aren't that many people out there who kind of understand the things that that, that, that I see. And of course, I've got a bias because I've got you know my family, as I've made clear in my my articles, my family lives there. And uh, and, uh, you know, so obviously that, that there is a bias, but it also means that I have a right I have some genuine perceptions and insights that people who have no idea about these things are saying. So, you know, people who are, um, have no idea and yet are sending me, you know, stuff from clear anti-Semites, you know, and clear lies and think, oh, you know, well, what do you think about this? You know, what's your response to this? I mean, well, why, why, are you, why, do you, you know, why do you just accept that stuff from people who don't know anything? You know, you don't know anything. You admit you don't know anything. Well, those people don't know anything either, and yet they're lying to you. But anyway. Well, listen, yeah. There's a, I'll, I'll leave everybody as well with a yeah. last quote. And this is from René Girard, who I'm going to be doing more work on, you know, talking about the scapegoating mechanism, about mimetic desire. And it kind of just caps what we were ending our discussion with. And René wrote, If you scapegoat someone, it's a third party that will be aware of it. It won't be you because you will believe you are doing the right thing. The quote I just read was from one of René Girard's seminal books, One by Whom Scandal Comes. Girard is one of my favorite thinkers and one of the most underrated philosophers of the 21st century. His work is so crucial to understand, especially now, so I'll be talking about his ideas a lot. If you want to learn more about René Girard's theories and how they can help you in understanding societal level events, and perhaps most importantly, in your personal life, you can sign up to my Substack and check the other resources I've plugged for you in the description below. You can also find Norman's essays there. I hope you enjoyed this podcast with Norman Fenton, and as always, please let me know what you think in the comments below. <laughs>